Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, March 26, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. From the Insider Notebook, Bits and Bites of the Finer Side of Iowa Business. Two ways the pandemic, social justice, may change employment law. By Emily Barsky. In a recent interview with Kelsey Knowles, a shareholder and attorney at Bell & McCormick, we talked about changes to employment law since the start of the pandemic. As we talked, I also asked her about equity issues that employers might want to know about. Here are two of those. Remote working co accommodations for people with disabilities may be more common. When employers converted their workforce to remote operations at the start of the coronavirus pandemic, en masse, many advocates in the disability community were frustrated that the changes could be made so swiftly, even though many folks with disabilities had been asking for remote working accommodations for years but were told it couldn't work. Business leaders across the state turned on a dime to create accommodations designed to protect employee health and make work accessible outside of the traditional brick-and-mortar workplace. Joseph Jones, executive director of Harkin Institute for Public Policy and Citizen Engagement, wrote in a column for the business record in July 2020 as part of the celebration of the Americans with Disability Act's 30th anniversary. He said, these same accommodations are what the disability community has sought for years to allow for a more open pathway to competitive, integrated employment for persons with disabilities. Now we all know it can be done. It raises the question, when more companies return to the office, will they still be able to deny those requesting work from home accommodations the same way they were before the pandemic? Knowles said, I think there will be changes, but she also noted that the changes to how employers look at remote accommodations might not be as sweeping as we thought at the beginning of the pandemic, as what some thought would only be weeks working at home turned into months upon months. Some employers realized that while remote working could be efficient in short settings, it wasn't sustainable for their business. Because it has gone on for so long, I think that maybe we have seen a little bit that there are some jobs where remote working doesn't work, or some people for whom it doesn't work, Knowles said. Sometimes you like these concrete rules that apply to everyone equally, but sometimes there are some folks that just don't perform as well when they work from home, and didn't have that accountability of an office. So it forces some individual conversation, she said. But I do think people are a little bit more open to the idea of a work-from-home setup, and I think it will be more challenging for employers to just say, nope, you can't work from home, this is an in-person job, without having an explanation as to why. The explanation of just saying, we'd like everybody to be in the same building, may not be enough, Knowles said. The pandemic has created this long experiment, she said. Some employers will have data to show that remote working created inefficiencies and lower productivity, but others will have the data showing the exact opposite, and remote accommodations are something that they probably would offer. The second issue, there's an expectation that employers educate themselves about racial equity. National conversations about racial injustice have also led to more civil rights lawsuits against companies. 
There's an expectation that white employers and fellow employees understand that their friends and co-workers of color have to deal with current events and the world in a different way than they do. One of the things that employers should be aware of, and especially those in a leadership role should be aware of, is that I think that the line is moved in terms of how people are expected to behave, Knowles said. She said tolerance for what may have been intended as a joke, but was actually perceived as racist, is no longer the same. I think there is an expectation that people educate themselves, and an expectation that people will treat one another with a high level of respect, she said. She said this is similar to how the Me Too movement brought light to sexual harassment, and callous comments that are no longer acceptable. The next column by Emily Blobaum. Four takeaways on failure, intersectionality, social justice, and awareness from ISU Women's Week. One of the benefits of the pandemic forcing many of us to isolate ourselves and work from home has been the sudden shift toward virtual programming, panel discussions, webinars, and lectures. These types of events have been massively helpful for me in terms of education, connection, and inspiration. Throughout the week of March 8th, the Iowa State University Student Government hosted Women's Week 2021, a conference with the intention to recognize the need to empower women to continue fighting for equity and take on leadership positions. I wasn't able to attend all 12 events, but here are four takeaways from the panel discussions that I was able to tune in. Number one, failure is only bad if you don't reflect on it. Participants in both the De Democratic and Republican Women in Politics panels were asked about the idea of failing and overcoming failure. On the Democratic panel, Jackie Norris was transparent about struggling throughout her time working as chief of staff for Michelle Obama and feeling like a failure when she decided to step away. She said, you have to remember that failure is only bad if you don't reflect on it. The lesson of failure is to reflect and move on. On the Republican side, Senator Joni Ernst reiterated that failing is okay. She said, if you're failing, it means you're engaging in debate and ideas. If you're not failing, you're either succeeding in absolutely everything that you do, or you're just simply not trying and not putting ideas forward. She mentioned a bill she's been reintroducing for years about over-the-counter birth control and how it's important to find ways to make it better and continue to reintroduce it. It's not about failing and stopping. You fail and you find a way to succeed, she said. Iowa Senator Kerry Kolker topped off the question by saying, if you fail, you're not a failure. Number two, women still face struggles in their job roles, but with intersecting identities, it may be hard to distinguish if what they're facing is specifically because of their gender. In a panel about violence against women and women's health, Margot Foreman, Assistant Vice President for Diversity, Inclusion, and Equal Opportunity at Iowa State, illustrated intersectionality well when she said, I come to work as a whole person. I don't come to work in one identity. If there's struggle, it's difficult to parse out where it belongs if it's because of my identity. Is it because I'm a plump-sized woman? Is it because I'm becoming more aged? Is it because I have a disability? Is it because I'm black? Is it because I'm female? 
Iowa Representative Ruth Ann Gaines said something similar in the politics panel. Quote, there's difficulty in distinguishing why you're not included at the table. Is it because I'm black? Is it because I'm a woman? Or is it because I'm both? End quote. Number three, it's important to learn about racial justice issues, but don't always rely on black women to educate you. In a panel discussion on diversity and inclusion, Rita Mukherjee, assistant teaching professor of sociology and women's and gender studies at Iowa State, mentioned that a great debt is owed to black women for their work in movements for equality and justice. She said, it's important to learn history and know who exactly fought for your rights. Later in the conversation, Toya Younger, senior vice president for student affairs at Iowa State, said, because we may be in small numbers, we feel like we're placed in situations where we're the spokesperson of all things black, or I have to explain black culture. That's not my job. There are times when I don't mind when people ask me questions, and I don't mind answering them because I love my blackness and the amazing history of where I come from. But I do think there are times where it's important for it not to come from me. Mukherjee added on saying, Google is free, y'all. She is there for you day and night. Going up to a friend or roommate and suddenly demanding that they do emotional labor by explaining something to you is not appropriate. The burden of labor can't just fall on the people who are already marginalized. And number four, progress is being made on raising awareness about sexual misconduct, misconduct and assault, but, quote, men's responsibility and energy toward fixing the problem is still not being called out as dramatically as it should be. We're still focusing on action from a victim's space, Margot Foreman said. She also mentioned that she's concerned about under-reporting from those with marginalized identities. Adrian Lyles, Associate Director of Equal Opportunity and Senior Deputy Title IX Coordinator at Iowa State, said, There's some progress for some voices. Think about Me Too, which is ultimately a white-size, straight woman's movement. Marginalized folks remained pushed to the margins. At the same time, it remains a woman's burden to bring it up, to put up with the trolling, the resistance, and the narratives. It's a bind. We're talking about it, but we're not hearing all of the voices, she said. Other recorded panel discussions, including one on international perspectives and one on female leadership, can be found on the ISU Student Government YouTube channel. Our next article is the 2021 Women's Survey, Pandemic Shines Spotlight on Disparities, by Emily Blobaum, Fearless Editor. For six years, the business record has published a survey dedicated to shining a light on issues that women face in Iowa, both at work and at home. While the survey is not scientific and different people respond every year, one thing has remained the same women are still not on equal footing with their male counterparts in many aspects of life, including pay, representation, treatment, and responsibilities. While progress has been demonstrated in recent years through the Me Too movement and the increase of diverse representation in political office, the pandemic has exacerbated these issues. 
This analysis aims to provide a wide-angle view on some of the biggest issues that survey respondents identified. A selection of responses is included with open-ended questions. More topics, such as family leave policies, discrimination, and the role of male allies, will be covered in depth in future editions of the Fearless newsletter. A total of 376 people participated in the survey between January 24th and February 12th. 40% were in the age range of 36 to 50, 28% 51 to 65, 22% 18 to 35, and 9% 66 and over. 92% were female, 72% married, 94% white or Caucasian, and 92% from the central Iowa area. The first survey question, what do you consider to be some of the biggest advancements of women in the last year? And the analysis, if anything, 2020 was a historical year of extremes. On one end, women saw historic job losses. More than 2.3 million women have left the workforce since February 2020, causing the labor participation rate to decline to levels not seen since the 1980s. On the other end, women experienced historic firsts. Iowa's congressional delegation became majority female for the first time. Delaware's Sarah McBride became the nation's first openly transgender state senator. Kim Eng became the first woman to be the general manager of a major, base, major league baseball team. Sydney Barber was named the first black woman to serve as the U.S. Naval Academy Brigade Commander. And perhaps most significant was the election of Kamala Harris to the vice presidency. But advancements don't always come in the form of firsts. Sometimes they come in the form of awareness. While the pandemic and the economic fallout certainly affected women and people of color at higher rates, causing the exact opposite of advancement, it also shed light on already existing issues. Here are some quotes from the survey respondents on this question. Quote, Seeing more females elected to public office was a win for women and our entire nation. But from an overall standpoint, this last year has been a setback for women. According to the National Women's Law Center, 80% of the workers who have left the labor force are women. This is a substantial setback as women are leaving the workforce due to a lack of a support system and taking on more childcare, household, and online teaching responsibilities. Additionally, the industries most impacted by COVID, such as healthcare, hospitality, service, education, and others, are female-dominated occupations, which further impacts women leaving the workforce. End quote. Quote, for decades, women gracefully balanced professional lives with motherhood. In the last year, men, and especially fathers who have been working from home, have seen firsthand that it is not a graceful act. I think more than ever, the intensity of being a working parent has been illuminated. Now that the other half has felt the pain, I think we are seeing massive changes in corporate policies that finally address the complexity of family and work. End quote. Quote, I think we are making steps in the right direction to lift voices of women and start to address these long-time systemic issues by just bringing light to the fact that they exist. Movements like Me Too have caused women to start to band together and realize that the way they have been treated wasn't just them. 
We're at the tip of the iceberg, but starting to dig a le little deeper into resolutions, end quote. Quote, we celebrated the first woman vice president and first woman to referee the Super Bowl, which represent great examples of advancement. But on a more local level, the pandemic has highlighted the fact that women are incredibly resourceful, which is an advancement in and of itself. Women have become quite accustomed to juggling the demands of career and family while battling gender norms. But of late, women have assumed additional responsibilities while in many cases receiving little support themselves. Homeschooling. Responsibility for the mental health challenges created by the pandemic for themselves and those they love. Caring for the physical and mental health of family and friends and in many cases caring for the health of small businesses in their communities. Over the last year, women have shown, whether driven by desire or circumstance, incredible adaptability and resilience." End quote. The next survey question, what are the biggest challenges, obstacles, or barriers that you and other women face at work? Analysis. Arguably, the biggest challenge that women faced at work this year was the fact that they lost work. While unemployment rates between men and women have mostly evened out now, at the start of the pandemic last year, the female unemployment rate was at 15%, compared with a male unemployment rate of 13%, leading to the coinage of the term she-session. For those who maintained employment, issues of pay equity and discrimination still persisted. The killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor Taylor last year brought forth a nationwide reckoning on racism, both at individual and systemic levels. Women continue facing personal challenges too, like lack of confidence and imposter syndrome. Quotes from survey respondents. Quote, I think shame undergirds so many of our struggles. Am I good enough? Do people think I'm doing a good job? How do people perceive me? End quote. Quote, the risk of a bad idea failure. Women are much less likely to take risk, which also sets us back from owning large portfolios. We need the confidence to break through and empower others to take risks. End quote. Quote, I think the perception of working women is one of the biggest issues. If you spend a lot of time at work, do you not care for or want a family? If you're in a position of leadership, what did you have to do to get there? You must be opinionated and brash to be able to succeed. If you are a stay-at-home mom, do you not have your own goals and ambition? Even just typing that made me cringe. I struggle with this and looking young, which I don't believe would have even been an issue if not for being a woman, which led to feelings of imposter syndrome, a lack of self-confidence, and burnout from trying to prove myself. End quote. Quote, Rate of pay for clerical jobs is lower than male-dominated jobs. I've been at my employer for over 10 years and still make less than $15 an hour for doing clerical work. End quote. Quote, I have examples in the last year alone how a young woman can be an expert and is dismissed while a slightly older man in a suit gives the same advice and is well-received. It was not about word choice, delivery, or posture. It was pure and simple sexism, end quote. Quote, the good old boys club is alive and well in Des Moines. Sexual harassment and inappropriate boundaries from men at work, 
The fact that women even in leadership positions are more frequently asked to do menial tasks or arrange meetings or run errands, end quote. End quote. I think racism and the intersection of race, gender, and other isms are the single greatest barriers to women in the workplace. Women of color in particular face a completely different work environment than white women, end quote. The next survey question, what are the biggest challenges, obstacles, or barriers that you and other women face outside of work? And the analysis, sexism continues to be a form of discrimination that women experience outside of the office. With traditional gender roles still very much at play, the pandemic forced millions of women to either quit or balance their jobs with taking care of their children after school and child care centers closed their doors. Fear for personal safety and treatment of women on social media were also identified as challenges. Recently, female reporters at national news outlets like Taylor Lawrence and Sung Min Kim have been victims of widespread harassment on social media. Other barriers and obstacles that respondents identified were more personal, like time management and imposter syndrome. Some quotes. Quote, women take on the majority of family-slash-household responsibilities, leaving little mental space or actual time to work on work outside of business hours. End quote. Quote, fear of walking alone at night. End quote. Quote, I don't use social media platforms. However, what I hear about misogynistic sexual attacks on ladies is alarming. End quote. Quote, Adequate division of responsibilities in the home. I earn more than double my husband and also am predominantly responsible for all household decisions as well as all meal planning and preparation. End quote. Quote, the chore gap and emotional toll gap, especially during a pandemic. As we are confined to home, women carry the brunt of the housework, like cooking, cleaning, taking care of the kids. Beyond that, women have the labor of organizing things. Spouse or partner wants to help clean? The woman of the house is typically the one who tells him what to clean. He wants to make dinner? Well, what do you want? The woman chooses. Even if she's making dinner, she's still in charge of deciding what to cook, what to put on the list, etc. It's like a management system, end quote. Quote, an issue that women face is the negativity of social media. It is the attention-seeking, instant gratification nature of people on social media that is toxic and can be deadly, especially in younger women. The pressure to have a life like those shown on Instagram, the need to be liked or to have so many views is truly a heavy load, end quote. And quote, woman, women place a lot of pressure on themselves to be great at work and home. These are challenges that we can navigate if we learn how to manage our expectations and ask for help from our family members, end quote. The next question, in the past five years, have women made significant progress in obtaining a better balance of gender parity in politics? The analysis. On the national stage, increases in female representation in politics have been attributed to backlash from the Anita Hill hearings in the 1990s and the election of President Donald Trump in 2016. Currently, women make up 26.5% of seats in the U.S. Congress. 
At the state level, women make up 28.7% of seats in the Iowa legislature, down from a record high of 29.3% in 2019 and 2020. In a previous story, Karen Kadrowski, director of the Carrie Chapman Cat Center for Women in Politics, said 29% is enough to be able to influence the agenda. But having said that, I would be happy if we could see that women were as represented amongst our elected officials as they are in the adult population. Women are 52% of the voting age population, so I think it would be great if we approached 52% amongst our elected officials. In response to the question, survey respondents said, yes, 62% of the time women have made progress in obtaining better balance of parity in politics. 21% said no, and 16% were undecided. The next survey question, how big an issue do you perceive access to affordable childcare in Iowa to be? The analysis, access to affordable quality childcare was an issue before the pandemic hit. Nearly 25% of Iowa's population lives in a childcare desert, and on average, it costs more for a child under five to attend full-time childcare at a Department of Human Services licensed center than it costs for in-state tuition at any of Iowa's regent universities. To make matters worse, a report by the Center for American Progress last April estimated that 51% of the child care supply in Iowa could be lost as a result of the pandemic. Governor Kim Reynolds, lawmakers, and business leaders listed child care as a top priority in the 2021 legislative session. Survey respondents, 80% said it is a major issue. 17% said somewhere in between, and 3% a minor issue. The next survey question, how big an issue do you perceive pay inequity in Iowa to be? The analysis, compared with last year, more respondents see pay inequity as a major issue this year. A recent analysis by the Institute for Women's Policy Research found that racial and gender wage gaps are still profound. Compared with white, non-Hispanic men's earnings, the median weekly earnings for Hispanic women were 58.7%, black women's were 63.6%, white, non-Hispanic women's 79.6%, and Asian women's 95.2%. Survey respondents, 63% said it is a major issue, 10% a minor issue, and 28% somewhere in the middle. The next survey question, tell us how close you perceive women are to reaching full equality with men. Analysis, we formatted the question differently on this year's survey to be on a sliding scale rather than a ranking from 1 to 10. Previous years saw an average of 5.78 out of 10. This year's survey respondents averaged 46 on a scale of 100. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, March 26, 2021 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Returning to our article, the next survey question Rate how supportive you perceive these industries and groups to be of women in business. This question has appeared in the women's survey since it began in 2016. 
this year, we decided to look at the previous five years to see what progress has been made, if any. The ranking reflects an average based on respondents assigning each area a value from 1 to 10, with 1 not being very supportive and 10 being very supportive. Most of these rankings hover around the five-point mark, which signals that we still have a long way to go on the road to progress. No individual group shows a steady path forward. Averages fluctuate from year to year. When looking at where we were in 2017, the area with the highest positive point difference is the U.S. government, which saw a 0.77 point increase. Areas that have seen a negative point difference compared with 2017 numbers are the state of Iowa government, bankers, lenders, investors, media, and men. Further analysis of this question will appear in future fearless newsletter coverage. Respondents to the 2021 survey indicated on a scale of 0 to 10, the world's support of women, 4.91. The U.S. government's support, 5.17. The Iowa state government, 4.70. Bankers, lenders, and investors, 5.35. Media, 5.57. Men, 5.27. And women, 6.97. And our final survey question. Do you feel that you've been treated equally to your male coworkers? The analysis. This question was also asked in the 2017 survey. That year, 65% of respondents said no. This year, 61% said no, 39% said yes. Quotes from survey respondents. Quote, I'm asked to do additional work that is outside of my job description on a regular basis, like making and fetching coffee for board meetings filling in at reception, and having to reach out to disgruntled citizens because the men don't want to deal with it. Additionally, I have to deal with being called sweetie, not being taken seriously, and being constantly talked over and interrupted. End quote. Quote, I'm frequently treated much differently for being a tough woman than a man with the same behaviors or attitudes. End quote. Quote, I have had great managers at times who treated me fairly. However, I feel that ended when I became a mom, end quote. And, quote, I was fortunate that at the time I came into the workforce, there was a real push to have women in leadership. And then I worked my butt off to continue to prove that I could be a leader. I was given some great opportunities by enlightened men, end quote. Now turning to the Elbert Files by business record columnist Dave Elbert. The first electric car. William Morrison, creator of the first practical electric car in 1890, may be Des Moines' most underappreciated inventor. His battery technology work was widely heralded at the time, and the dozen electric cars he designed were highly prized. But Morrison's accomplishments were largely forgotten when gasoline-powered vehicles consigned his electric car carriage to a footnote of history. More than 130 years after Morrison's first electric car wobbled onto Des Moines streets, electric vehicles are again a focus of attention because of their efficiency and lack of pollution. And the inventor, who was buried in Woodland Cemetery in 1927, is once more a subject of wide interests. Morrison first appeared in Wikipedia, the publicly edited online encyclopedia, 
a year ago, and the entry for him is now 11 pages, including six pages of footnotes and sources. Born in 1855 in Scotland, Morrison was, quote, educated in a Scottish university and became interested in electricity at an early age, end quote. According to a 1963 article in the Annals of Iowa, one of the many cited by Wikipedia. He emigrated to the United States in 1880 and arrived in Des Moines after spending time in other locations, including Parsons, Kansas, where he worked as, quote, an excellent watchmaker and a man somewhat peculiar on account of his individuality, end quote, according to an 1893 newspaper article. In Des Moines, Morrison was described as, quote, a quiet, mysterious man who didn't eat meat, only nuts, vegetables, fruits, and puddings. He was a tall, dark-haired, husky man and was always clean-shaven. He was quiet, eccentric, and even a little pompous at times, end quote, wrote Keith McClellan, author of the 1963 Annals of Iowa article. Morrison was quote, an electric battery genius, at a quote, end quote, at a time when, quote, electrical energy was a fresh and booming field, end quote. McClellan wrote, noting that electric lights were first used in Des Moines in the mid-1880s, and that in 1888, quote, the city's electric railway system went into service, end quote. Electric motors, similar to the one Morrison used to propel his carriage, were already being used in streetcars, and the motor he used was a version of the streetcar motor. The Scotsman's contribution was the portable supply of electrical energy he created, although he also devised innovative gearing and steering mechanisms. Morrison was awarded many patents. One article lists 88 mostly for work on storage batteries. Those patents, which he sold, were the source of considerable wealth. And while Morrison was exceedingly proud of having invented the first electric car, he made it clear that batteries, not the car, were his focus. Morrison's first prototype electric vehicle was put together in 1887 with the help of Dr. Lou Arntz, who was identified in a 1919 Des Moines Register article as a, quote, watch repairman and expert mechanic, end quote. Their first vehicle had several problems, including poor steering. By 1890, a second iteration included revisions to its electric motor, gear train, batteries, and steering. That vehicle debuted on Des Moines streets during the city's 1890 Semi-Ohm Said Parade, which featured, for the first time, floats bedecked with electric lights powered by batteries. The parade's goal was to outshine New Orleans' Mardi Gras, and the 75 to 100,000 people who turned out were not disappointed. A main focus was, quote, the novel sight of seeing a horseless carriage end quote, McClellan wrote. Morrison's three-seat vehicle was powered by 24 storage battery cells placed under the first row of seats. The cells weighed a total of 768 pounds and powered a four-horsepower modified trolley motor connected to the rear wheels. A foot lever controlled three speeds by switching various combinations of cells on and off. 
Morrison said the vehicle could carry up to 12 passengers at speeds up to 20 miles per hour and travel up to 50 miles before the batteries required recharging. Next, our marketing column by Drew McClellan, top dog at McClellan Marketing Group. How much are you willing to invest? Over the last several weeks, we've focused on how brands can leverage people of influence to advance their marketing with the influencer's audience. This week, I want to look at the same opportunity, but from the other side of the coin. What if you were the person of influence? There's no reason you couldn't build an audience that would see you as an expert. Because they'd come to trust you, it's likely they would become a potential buyer for your product or services but it sure doesn't happen overnight. Many business owners and leaders have spent decades in their industry developing a deep subject matter expertise. They speak at conferences, write books, and often consult. They produce weekly content that teaches their audience and improves some aspect of their life every time. If that's you, then you could be ready to step into that authority position. But Dave Ramsey, Seth Godin, and Brene Brown didn't become subject matter experts overnight. They didn't just decide that they'd like to be considered an expert. They earned that moniker. We don't get to decide that we're an expert. The audience decides when we've been at it long enough, our advice has served them well, and our consistency has proved that we have a depth of knowledge that is sustainable. Then, and only then, might they consider calling us an expert. Many people believe that writing a book or having a podcast is enough to earn the label. Don't get me wrong, it's a fine start, but it's just a start. We often believe that it's the big things that earn someone that expert status. But in reality, it's the little things that add up to the depth of trust required to label someone an expert. Dave Ramsey has done a daily show, first radio and now TV, since 1992. Seth Godin has written a daily blog post for almost two decades and has written 18 books. Brene Brown has been an educator and researcher for decades. She produces a weekly podcast and has written five bestsellers and publishes on her social channels every day. These professionals have so much to share that they produce helpful content every single day for more than a decade. That's how you become a subject matter expert. You make the grand gesture with a book or two, but then you support that grand gesture with daily or almost daily contributions that add value to your audience. You teach every day. You give away your best stuff. You don't hold back or bait and switch. You give generously. I can hear you already. I don't have time to produce that much content. I'm too busy taking care of clients. If it were easy, everyone would be an expert. If this matters to you and your business, you're going to have to carve out the time. Here are a few suggestions for being consistent with helpful content so that you can earn your expert badge from your audience. Choose a single channel. You can't put new content everywhere every day. Decide which channel both suits you best and is attractive to your audience. Batch the work. Carve out a few hours on your calendar every week and produce next week's content. Always be working at least a week ahead and make the consequence of missing your deadline one you never want to endure. Think snack, 
not a meal. You've already written the book or done something else significant. This content should be snack-sized. A single idea or a helpful tip. The value of being seen as an authority has direct connection to your bottom line. But you have to be willing to earn the title if you want the rewards. Now turning to the One Voice section from the Des Moines Partnership, The Chairs Column by Fred Buey, 2021 Chairman of the Des Moines Partnership. Continue to support hashtag DSM Local as we recover from the pandemic. Last year, right around this time, we were starting to fully understand the COVID-19 pandemic and how it would affect our lives and organizations for the foreseeable future. One of the impacts that became immediately clear was that our small businesses needed help. Social distancing affects any business that relies on in-person service, whether that be a retailer, restaurant, bar, or even companies that provide services such as professional development training. The partnership worked with local partners to launch a number of initiatives to help small businesses and encourage community members to support local. Here is a snapshot of what we were able to accomplish together. A number of public and private partners contributed to the Small Business Recovery Grant Program that awarded $1.79 million to 292 companies. The Extend the Season Grant, led by the same partners, resulted in 325 outdoor heaters provided to local restaurants. The DSM Local Challenge, launched by Catch Des Moines and the partnership, encouraged residents to support local. And the hashtag DSM Local Challenge garnered more than 42.8 million impressions. A year after the beginning of the pandemic, we can sense optimism in the air. More and more people are getting vaccinated and the weather is getting warmer. It is important as ever to support local small businesses. According to a recent survey by SCORE, a total of 48.7% of small businesses described themselves as not profitable at the end of 2020, up from 25.3% at the end of 2019. That number is unfortunately even higher for Black-owned small businesses at 56.3%, and Hispanic-owned small businesses at 52.8%. That is why we launched the hashtag DSM Local Buying Guide and Restaurant Guide. Restaurant residents can find a list of where to shop, where to eat, and how to do it safely using the hashtag DSM Local Buying Guide and Restaurant Guide. If your business is a member of the partnership or one of its affiliate chambers and would like to be featured in one of the guides, you can sign up online using this link, bit.ly forward slash 38HTSAN. You can find the guides and a list of even more places to buy local, including a link to Black Iowa Business Directory compiled by the Director's Council at dsmpartnership.com forward slash dsmlocal. We published a spring break buying guide with ideas that are still relevant even now after spring break is over. As the weather gets warmer, we have published a gardening buying guide for ideas on where to support local as you work on your spring gardening and landscaping plans. In coming months, watch for buying guides for Mother's Day and Father's Day. 
You can find all of these guides at dsmpartnership.com forward slash blog. Our community has done a tremendous job stepping up in a time of need. We encourage you to continue supporting local small businesses as we begin to emerge from this pandemic. Your support could be the difference. The bragging rights column from hashtag DSM Strong. The Des Moines Area Regional Transit Authority, DART, donated multiple rideshare vans to local nonprofit organizations to assist their transportation needs. Business Publications Corporation was ranked as a top media company by Editor and Publisher magazine. The Des Moines International Airport announced that they will provide on-site COVID-19 testing to travelers. Blank Park Zoo announced their Wild Lights Festival, sponsored by Mid-American Energy Company. The festival will run from April 1st to May 31st. Hy-V Inc. and Delta Dental of Iowa both won Healthiest State Initiative 2021 awards. Delta Dental won in the medium employer category and Hy-V won in the large employer category. Meredith Corporation announced their Good Impressions program, a pro bono media and marketing consultation service created to specifically support BIPOC and LGBTQIA owned businesses. Merle Hay, Orchard View Sports and Entertainment, the City of Des Moines, and the City of Urbandale announced a partnership to convert the former Yonkers store in Merle Hay Mall into a 3,500-seat hockey arena for the Des Moines Buccaneers hockey team. Broker Tech Ventures, a business accelerator supported in part by Holmes Murphy & Associates, announced their 2021 cohort for their accelerator program. A total of 12 InsureTech startups will participate in the curriculum. Mercy One, Unity Point Health Des Moines, and ChildServe had nurses recognized in the 100 Great Iowa Nurses of 2021 list. Iowa State University announced their 2021 Business Analytics Symposium on April 6th and 7th. The symposium will be held virtually this year with a new format with several keynote speakers scheduled over the two half-day events. In other One Voice news, DSM Book Festival 2021 virtual and in-person event lineup begins March 27th. The DSM Book Festival will host several virtual and socially distanced in-person sessions, including the Prairie Meadows Author Series featuring nationally acclaimed authors, hybrid hands-on workshops, book-themed happy hours, and virtual children's activities. The festival will occur over the course of four Saturdays in March and April, beginning March 27th, with programs offered on four consecutive Saturdays. Masks will be required at all in-person events. Nationally acclaimed authors at the Prairie Meadows Author Series include, on March 27th, Tayari Jones, author of An American Marriage, presented by the Des Moines Public Library's Authors Visiting in Des Moines, AVID, series. April 3rd, Chuck Klosterman, author of But What If We're Wrong, presented by Come and Go. April 10th, Lara Prescott, author of The Secrets We Kept, 
presented by the John Ruan Foundation. And April 17th, Taylor Jenkins Reed, author of Daisy Jones and the Six, presented by the Polk County Board of Supervisors. You can see the full festival lineup at dsmbookfestival.com. Construction to begin on Des Moines Industrial Transloading Facility. Des Moines Industrial announced that construction has begun on the Des Moines Industrial Transloading Facility project with an open date scheduled for later this year. The transloading facility will be located at 200 East Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway. The site has direct access to Iowa Interstate Railroad, Norfolk Southern, and BNSF railroads, making it the premier rail-based transportation hub in Iowa, in addition to being just a mile away from the intersection of Interstates 35 and 80. You can learn more at dsmpartnership.com forward slash news. From the DSM USA Buzz, Midwest Living listed the downtown DSM Historic East Village as one of the best revitalized neighborhoods and the John and Mary Papa John Sculpture Park as one of the best public art collections in the Midwest in their 2021 Best of the Midwest list. The state of Iowa was ranked number one best state for opportunity by U.S. News & World Report. These rankings factor in affordability, economic opportunity, and equality. Lauridson Skate Park was recognized as a sports venue to watch by Sports Travel Magazine. This list includes 15 spots around the country to monitor as COVID-19 travel restrictions ease. Christine Thompson, Director of Marketing at the Greater Des Moines Partnership, was named to the Business Records 40 Under 40 class. And that does it for today's reading of the Business Record for Friday, March 26, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
This is Tom Hatton with an Irish short take from the book entitled A Culinary History of Iowa. And this article, actually it says chapter 2, is entitled Immigrants Influence Iowa's Food Traditions. Hundreds of thousands of pioneers and immigrants from many parts of Europe and beyond flocked, flocked to Iowa in the 19th and early 20th centuries in search of a better life. Whether that meant economic opportunity, religious freedom, or the chance to create a utopian society, these newcomers brought a variety of unique food traditions with them and transformed Iowa's culinary history. Some immigrants, like the French Icarians, were motivated by ideological ideals when they settled in America. The new state of Iowa, specifically Adams County, became the promised land for Frenchmen and women pursuing their dream to create a communal utopian society where everyone was equal. By some accounts, their Icaria colony in southwest Iowa was the longest existing, non-religious, purely communal experiment in American history. The first Icarian party arrived in Iowa in 1852. They purchased about 3,000 acres of land from the United States government at $1.25 per acre to build their new colony near Corning. Living conditions in the untamed lands of southwest Iowa were often harsh. Log houses, some without wood floors or windows, were the French settlers' only shelter against the brutal winter. Most of the Icarians' land was unfenced, unbroken prairie, and there was not one settler along the trail before they reached Icaria, according to some reports. Supplies for the colony often had to be hauled overland for hundreds of miles. Only a few basic ingredients, including milk, butter, cornbread, and bacon formed the daily menu. As a communal society, the Icarians worked together on the farms and ate together in a communal dining hall, where evening meals were sometimes followed by music or lectures spoken in French. Little by little, living conditions in the colony improved as the Icarians managed, managed to establish a fairly successful agricultural enterprise. When wool prices, prices skyrocketed with the outbreak of the Civil War, the Icarians thrived by selling wool and other supplies to the Union Army. While the war ended in 1865, trouble was brewing in the Icaria colony by the 1870s. Much of the conflict revolved around little gardens, according to an April 1921 article in the Iowa History Journal, The Pelham Pest. Earlier in the history of the Icarian community in Iowa, each family had been permitted to cultivate a little garden around their log house where flowers might be raised. Some families had planted vines and even fruit trees. Now that, now that these plants were bearing fruit, the more radical members of the colony could not tolerate this violation of their rules against private property. The possessors of the gardens, however, clung to their little plots of ground. It wasn't much, but it was theirs. The authorities tried to settle the quarrel with a compromise. As each family moved from their log house to a new frame house, their little garden was to be given up. There would be no simple resolution to this dispute, however, which triggered open hostilities. The radicals claimed that the community had violated its constitution and announced their intent to withdraw. They also advocated an aggressive style of communism and appealed to a circuit court to revoke the charter granted to the community in 1860 on the grounds that Icaria was really a communist establishment instead of an agricultural society, as the Articles of Incorporation provided. By 1879, a group of younger progressive colony members had split from the older, more conservative members. 
This marked the beginning of the end for the Icarians' utopian experiment in Iowa. In 1898, members voted to end the colony. By then, it consisted mostly of elders who could no longer continue the hard work of operating the colony. The Icarian movement in America was over. The legacy of the Icarian movement endures, however. The French Icarian Colony Board of Trustees was formed in recent years and has been rebuilding the French Icarian village on a portion of original Icarian land east of Corning. The 1878 Refectory Communal Dining Hall and 1860 One-Room Icaria School have been restored for tours and research. History comes to life at the French Icarian Village through events like the annual Fête de May, Festival of Corn, which is held in the fall. The original Fête de May was a celebration held by the Icarians each fall after all the crops were harvested. The feast was served in the communal dining hall to everyone who came to help on the final day of corn harvest. In late September 2015, the Creston News Advertiser promoted the French Icarian Village's fourth annual Fête de May, which included a four-course French supper featuring flavors of the Alsace region. It's a modern taste of the French Icarian's quest for utopia and Iowa. And that was an excerpt from A Culinary History of Iowa by Darcy Doherty, Malsey, and other offbeat stuff by Eric Jones, Dan Coffey, and Barrett Thorkelson.